This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So before I moved to South Carolina, I was a professor at the University of Chicago, and I lived in walking distance to its Museum of Natural History, the Field Museum. This made it a frequent destination for me and my young children on cold weekend days. They like the dinosaurs. Um, like many museums of natural history, it contains a hall of evolution. Um, the hall's meandering path traces life's development on Earth from its origin in the Archeon to the present day. I guess that's the second week of September till the end of the year, as we <laughs> just learned. Now, the final exhibit, writ large on the far concave wall of an otherwise empty and darkened room, it attempts to capture the, the grandeur of our current chapter. Darwin's words occupy its center, says, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been and are being evolved. And the quote surrounded by just dozens of circular backlit pictures that testify to the diversity Darwin praises. Um, the tree of life's full breadth from the simplest unicellular organism to the smiling face of a human child is on display. So in a single gaze, you see you know, ferns, flowers, and fungi, spiders, snakes, and seahorses. But what does this display present to us? Why should we consider activities as diverse as an amoeba dividing, a saffron crocus blooming, a Bengal tiger stalking its prey, a human being contemplating the heavens to be manifestations of a single thing, namely life? Now we've come to understand that there's a, a profound historical continuity that underlies this diversity. These organisms and their characteristic activities, they belong to the intricate and expanding descendancy of those ancient protocellular beings that arose within the seemingly inhospitable geothermal waters of what was until then an entirely barren and inanimate planet. The possession of this common ancestry is a mark that distinguishes every living organism on our planet from what is bereft of life. But despite its immense explanatory power, the discovery of this evolutionary nexus does not answer our question. For even if its membership correctly delimits all known living organisms, it doesn't explain why. It doesn't explain why the first living being deserved its novel status. It doesn't explain what it is for any individual organism here and now to live. It doesn't explain what it would be for life to realize itself in ways far different from what our earthbound experiences reveal or our limited imaginations contrive. In short, it does not capture what life is or means. Now, answering this question is one of Aristotle's central tasks in his treatise De Anima on the Soul. As the title of this talk suggests, it's his discussion that I'll be engaging with. Soul is coextensive with life because the soul is life's principle the primary cause and ultimate explanatory ground of all the vital activities and movements that occur within or by a living organism, including bodily maintenance, reproduction, self-motion, perception, thought, and many others. As Aristotle says, an individual performs these activities in virtue of or with its soul. Now, to deny that there are souls is to deny life itself. And this claim will likely surprise the vast majority of present-day thinkers who happily countenance living beings and all of their variety, but 
steadfastly eschew explanations and invoke souls. But to introduce the soul as the principle of life is not to make any substantive claim about what the soul is beyond its being that which ultimately causes and explains life. Um, I mean, before one, just as a general methodological principle, before one determines what something is or the reason why something is, one must establish if it is. And one establishes the existential claim for souls by recognizing that there are living organisms and by appreciating that there must be something, maybe several things perhaps, that explain both life's presence and the distinctive ways it manifests itself. And Aristotle calls this principle, whatever it turns out to be, soul. So even the most adamant materialist, as long as she's not an eliminativist about life, must accept that there are souls. Disagreement arises only with respect to what souls are and what it is about them that causes and explains life. Um, this is why Aristotle begins his inquiry by surveying his predecessors' accounts of what the soul is. He takes them all seriously. You know, maybe the soul is a rarefied form of material fire that permeates the body, or it's a racial or harmony of the different physical properties of the matter that makes up one tissue the organs, or it's a self-moving number. These are all on the table. Yeah. Uh, open options for what the soul is. So back to the, the guiding question. What makes the characteristic activities of the many species we encounter all cases of living rather than fundamentally distinct activities that just happen to share a name? When Aristotle lists the most difficult obstacles that one has to overcome to acquire knowledge about the soul, he offers a warning. This is T1 on your handout. It says, we must take care not to overlook the question of whether there's one account of soul, so there's one account of animal, or whether there is a different account for each type of soul. For example, of horse, of dog, of man, of God. Well, the universe animal is either nothing or is posterior to these. We may all agree, say, that dogs and horses are alive, and that eating and perceiving are exemplary vital activities. We can, however, make these claims without a proper grasp of what life is. I take it most people do this. <laughs> um, but unless there's a possible understanding of life that unites its many sundry realizations, there can be no proper inquiry into life or soul as such. Um, this is because, according to Aristotle, every science is concerned with a determinate and unique subject genus. Um, the subject genus is what the science is about. So, for example, uh, subject genus of arithmetic is number, subject genus of geometry is spatial magnitude, he thinks. And a subject genus, it's not, it's not an arbitrary collection of individuals. It must possess some sort of unity. There must be something that ties the individuals a subject genus comprises to, together in such a way that it's reasonable to study them through a single form of scientific inquiry. But I've been, I've been noting it's an open question whether there's any unity that underlies the diverse ways life manifests itself. Perhaps the only unity that's present occurs at some lower level of generality. In the extreme case of the level of species, right, there may be, at best, the science of dog life, the science of horse life, the science of human life, and others. Aristotle mentions a proliferation of departments at the university. Is there anything about living organisms and their vital activities that unites them in a way that makes this class an appropriate subject genus of genuine science? Now, the search for unity, it turns out, um, is more difficult than it may initially appear. 
Aristotle identifies several different types of activity that we all readily recognize as ways life is expressed or manifests itself. So I think this is T2. He says, we say then, making a fresh beginning of our inquiry, that what is ensouled is distinguished from what is not ensouled by living. But life is spoken of in many ways. I'm coming back to it later. And we say that a thing lives if even one of these belongs to it. Intellect, perception, movement, and rest respect of place. Furthermore, the movement involved in nutrition, decay, and growth. Imagine this list going on further. We take something to be alive if it displays at least one of these types of activity. A list like this, um, I mean, it establishes what was never seriously in doubt, that life and soul exist. But they're not the starting point of the science of soul. These lists do not establish what life is or means. At best, they can serve as an empirical test, right? So the question then, on the basis of what marks could one divide what there is into the living and the non-living? You have two boxes and you want to put everything in one or the other. <laughs> well, the answer if something manifests any of these types of activities, then one can conclude that it possesses a capacity of soul and is therefore alive. But Aristotle, he's well aware that a mere list of marks or signs in this way doesn't capture the unity of a subject. Um, when he begins his positive account of the soul, he takes this unity to be the first thing he must establish. And he sets out to do so in a very familiar way. He attempts to provide a definition. If you can give a definition of life, then you're, you're in the clear as far as uh, making it um, a unified subject genus. So he finishes his survey of all of his predecessors' accounts of soul. He says, uh, T3, let us start anew, as if from the beginning, endeavoring to determine what the soul is and what its most common definition would be. And this result is fairly well known. Um, the first definition of soul here. The soul is the form, in the sense of first actuality, of a natural instrumental body that has life potentially. I'm told to not presuppose vast background knowledge of Aristotle, so I should probably explain this definition briefly. Those will find out um, the details aren't going to matter much. It's a bad definition. <laughs> Most of my point will be why this is no good. As a definition. Um, so, very briefly, to say that the soul is a form in the sense of first actuality is to say the soul is responsible for the organism being capable of doing certain things, but capable in a distinctive way. Right? So, um, my five year old daughter is capable of solving calculus equations um, in the sense that she's a human being and she, you know, humans are capable of doing this in a way that a rock isn't. Right? Um, but if I you know, put the exam in front of her, she's not going to fare very well. Right? There's another sense of being able and being capable when you're poised and ready to be able to do something when the opportunity presents itself. That is the sense of being capable in the sense of first actuality. Living organisms are capable of performing the vital activities that are central to whatever specific kind of life you're manifesting. Um, it occurs in a natural instrumental body. Instrumental meaning you've got organs, each fitted per, for particular functions that um, one needs to perform in order to live the right kind of life. And it happens in not just any old body, but a body that has life potentially, um, a body that is capable of having relevant, relevant capacities and executing relevant functions, um, a kind of matter that can be an instrument for these vital activities. And it's a very different 
matter depending on the kind of life, right? My organs are very different than, than alligators, but you know, there's some kinds of matter that aren't appropriate at all. You aren't going to get a living organism, you know, out of a collection of Ziploc bags filled with water or something. It's not going to support the kind of instruments that are needed to be capable of living in this way. After he gives this definition, um, he surveys several potential problems with it and is actually able to overcome most of these obstacles. But there's one shortcoming that sticks. Um, and it's due to his claim that life is said in many ways. Again, this is from the central of the second quote on the handout. Now, this phrase, spoken of in many ways, it's not an offhand remark. It has a technical meaning, Aristotle says this, um, a technical meaning that ends up being very significant in this context. If something is said in many ways, then it is uh, what he calls homonymous. Things are homonyms if they differ either partially or completely in their essence or account, but are nevertheless picked out by a single word. Right? Sometimes we have one word picks out things that are fundamentally different from one another. To claim that life is homonymous is to deny that the soul can be defined univocally, a single definition. There will be as many definitions as there are ways life can be said. And this causes a problem because if life is homonymous, this is going to affect any definition that contains life in its definiendum. Any such definition will be nothing more than sort of schema in which life is a placeholder that can be instantiated by any of the several ways life is set. Um, and lo and behold, the first definition of soul I gave is exactly like this, right? In the um, definiendum, part of the definition involves a body that has life potentially. And so it ends up um, looking like the second definition, the soul starred. Um, soul is the form and the sense of first actuality of a natural instrumental body that nourishes potentially, or locomotes potentially, or perceives potentially, or thinks potentially. These are the different ways, like is said, there may be more, right? Um, now, a definition like this, a kind of disjunctive definition, it on its own can't show that either soul or life is a unitary, unified subject, the appropriate kind. If it's open-ended, the definition, I mean, then it's really bad, it'll fail to fix an extension. You don't even know what ends up um, counting as a soul, let alone specify an essence that would unite its members. And if there's a fixed and finite number of disjuncts, um, there's still an obvious question. What is it that explains why these and only these disjuncts are the correct ones? Um, it would be the principle that delimits the definition's disjuncts that would serve as an appropriate explanatory ground for the definiendum's unity. And, and the disjunction's not on its own. It doesn't itself contain the principle that delimits its disjuncts. And the situation in which Aristotle finds himself is directly relevant to the methodological remarks um, with which I began in T1, right? When he talks about how there may be different accounts for each type of soul, right? Um, the investigation of soul may begin with a definition that's as general as that of living beings. It may, however, begin with definitions as specific as horse, dog, man, god. And if the latter is true, um, there will be different principles that govern horse life, dog life, human life, divine life. We can call all of these things living, 
There's no problem with that. Um, we can say that they all possess souls, but the word soul and life will be homonymous, and they'll either, one, pick out a collection of homonyms and provide no common understanding why each of them receives this name. They'll be nothing. That's the first option. Or second, they could pick out a single thing, but only after one's come to understand the more specific instances. This is the second option, the Doki posterior intentions. Now, Aristotle, he, he unambiguously rejects the first option. Um, um, there cannot be a single univocal essence specifying genus determining definition of soul. Um, indeed, he says this is in T4, uh, kind of in the middle of it all again. He says, it is foolish. Um, this is Goloyan, it's sometimes translated ridiculous or other words of this sort. It's foolish in this and similar cases to seek a common definition which is not a definition peculiar to anything which exists and which does not correspond to any proper and indivisible species while neglecting what is of this sort. Um, so he's not saying that no common account of soul can be given. I mean, he's just provided one. You've seen it, right? This is an account that applies to every soul if it is a soul. And I mean, I've yet to give any reasons to, to doubt that being a good common account. But Aristotle is denying that account that contains only what's common to all souls would capture what is essential to the soul of any particular living organism, or to the classes of soul that correspond to the basic distinctive ways life is said. So by Aristotle's own lights, it would be foolish to view what his uh, um, what his attempt to give a common account of soul yields as a definition of soul. His account may say true things about souls, may say true things about the vital activities they cause, um, but it doesn't state what soul or life is. There's not a single soul around that it would reveal the essence of. Right. So an inquiry into soul that begins with the definition that's as general as you know life or living being, that's off the table. But there are these other two options I mentioned that embrace life's homonymy. Life may be nothing, or it may be posterior. Um, both methods involve descent to a level of generality lower than that of just life as such, in the hope of finding accounts that succeed in capturing what's essential to what they're of. Where the two approaches differ is in the kind of variety of homonymy they attribute to life and in what unity, if any, they take to be present among the many ways life is said once one's completed these more specific inquiries. So to say that life is nothing, this is not to be like a nihilist about living organisms and souls. It's simply deny that there's any significant unity to life over and above its homonymous manifestations. Right? Um, it would be like if there were a science of banks that covered both um, the sides of rivers and financial institutions. There's really nothing that unites these two different homonymous uses. And maybe life is like that. Not that there isn't life, but that there's nothing over and above the many distinct different ways life is said that would unite them at all. They're all going to be distinct kind of um, subject matters with distinct kinds of investigations. Um, that would be kind of depressing. And, uh, so, you know, if that were true, we could at best give definitions for each of the basic ways life is said. Um, the other option to say that life is posterior is to affirm that there is some variety of unity, robust enough among the many ways life is said. Um, but you can only understand this after 
a thorough inquiry takes place at a lower level of generality. You aren't going to be able to just go after life directly and give a definition of it. So if there's a single science of soul, if soul, when conceived unqualifiedly, is not to signify nothing, then it must be posterior in this way. Okay. I should note, um, the sort of answer space that Aristotle describes here, at least to my life, still governs present-day attempts to understand life. Um, these analyses, they often take the form of definitions, or at least attempts at a univocal definition, and they comprise several perhaps individually necessary but jointly sufficient conditions that all and only living things satisfy. I'll give an, an example. Uh, yeah, on the back side um, here, the second page of the handout, it contains only a small fraction of what appears on these lists. You see these lists often right? um, and when anyone's trying to get the definition of life. So something is alive if it's highly organized, if it grows and develops, it's metabolically homeostatic or autopoietic, it's thermodynamically amplitude, it's subject to adaptation, responds to stimuli, reproduces on specifics. I mean, these lists, there are a lot of different options. <laughs> but every putative definition, it's immediately met with all sorts of counterexamples that either satisfy the criteria but wouldn't on any ordinary conception be considered alive or that are not obviously inanimate, but don't satisfy the criteria. And to inoculate a proposal from this conquest of counterexamples, um, one must ultimately, I mean, in practice, one ultimately goes one of two routes, right? You either appeal to metaphysically contingent material characteristics, say the possession of DNA, that may aid the recognition of living things, but are irrelevant to understanding what life is. I mean, it may be a good mark. It may actually be cosmically necessary that something like DNA is present, but it's um, not the right sort of answer. I mean, for one thing, it does exclude other planets that have very different kinds of um, underlying structures and living organisms. We, we discussed some of these already um, as far as this audience is concerned, care that it would exclude angels from among the living, <laughs> which don't have DNA. The second option people take is um, they, they end up importing the very concept of life that the proposal was meant to elucidate. So when all is said and done, um, to be alive is to exemplify an irreducibly say, vital organization, not just any organization, right? Um, or to go various life processes. Um, this is going to be kind of flatly circular when you're importing the notion of life to characterize the kind of organization you're after. Um, you know, a lot of things are organized. And my refrigerator has parts, so do football teams, you know, the, the molecules that make up a crystal. Those aren't the right kind of organization. And then when you actually push the only way to give an account of the kind of organization that matters to living things, you end up already employing the concept of life that you're trying to elucidate. Um, my old professor, Michael Thompson, in um, a appropriately lauded uh, essay on this topic called The Representation of Life, he, he expresses this dilemma well. He says, every candidate list occupant must strike the sub-metaphysical scylla of DNA or else sink into the tautological crudeness of organs. Every such list may as well be replaced by the empty list. 
pessimistic. Now, the recognition that these attempts to define life, even if you loosen it up and, and make them kind of a, a form or a system of like family resemblances rather than necessary conditions, um, that it's a futile pursuit has led many to adopt the first of Aristotle's alternatives, that life is nothing. Um, that is, there's no unity life to life beyond which we impose externally by linguistic stipulation or pragmatic preference. And, and this pragmatic approach, you know, you may have different accounts for different disciplines based on what's required for that particular investigative mission's ends. And it turns out there are actually few subdisciplines in biology that concern themselves with what life is. Um, we've seen one astrobiology. It's quite important to have some grasp of what life is. You'll see it in those who study the origins of life, which we'll be, we'll be talking about to, to, tomorrow. Um, it's relevant to that intersection of biology and engineering that is artificial life. Um, basically, any, um, any discipline that requires understanding life for success conditions, right? You want to know if you found life or when life has come to be or if you created life. Okay. I mean, you need to know what life is, but you may have very different thresholds for success in these different disciplines. Most biologists don't seem to care at all. I'm impressed with many. You know, if you're your, your average workaday microbiologist, you're happy to be pipetting away and studying um, whatever you're doing. And, and the question of what life is is kind of far in the background with, you know, with respect to your, your daily tasks. Right. Um, but present-day theorists, neither present-day theorists nor Aristotle, they don't need to draw this conclusion. Um, and I'm going to argue that Aristotle adopts the remaining available position. Um, it's not that you can give a definition of life or that life is nothing, that there's no unity, but that life is posterior. Um, when Aristotle investigates the nutritive, the perceptual, the rational capacities in turn, he does this, he goes through them all. He's not only attempting to understand the living or vital capacities, um, he's not just providing us with successive accounts. He's attempting to understand why any of these capacities are living or vital capacities at all. Um, He's trying to explain the unity among them in virtue of which they're to be considered instances of living. So what kind of unity, if any, does Aristotle's sequential inquiry reveal? Now, there are many ways to achieve a posterior understanding of the concept, and several methods for securing some unity among homonyms, among things that are said in many ways. Um, there's um, unity by analogy, uh, unity by something called vocal connection. If this were a slightly different talk, and I had several more hours, I'd run through all of these options and explain why none of them work. <laughs> um, but there is one positive option, which I will describe, that he endorses um, um, what I call hierarchical unity. Being a member of a properly ordered hierarchy is a genuine source of unity that can't be reduced to the other kinds of posterior unity that, that don't work out. Um, so Aristotle, he begins, Dan or two, three, with the description of the capacities of soul in which are present in the various living organisms we encounter. There are all sorts of these comparisons. So some living organisms possess only nutritive capacities, capacities to grow and take in food and maintain oneself and reproduce. Others also possess the capacity to perceive. 
but they cannot do so unless they also possess the nutritive capacity. Some perceivers possess uh, only the sense of touch, and everything that possesses touch also possesses the capacity to desire. I'm not going to defend any of these claims, but he's just making these sorts of comparisons. But without touch, none of the other senses can be present. Only perceivers possess the capacity to move. Some are mobile, others sessile. And there's a long list of these kind of um, existential asymmetries, right? dependencies. And within this network of dependencies, a tripartite hierarchy emerges. Among terrestrial organisms, we find that nutritive capacities can occur on their own in plants. Perceptual capacities require nutritive capacities, but can occur without rational capacities. This is in animals. Uh, and rational capacities require both nutritive and perceptual capacities. This is in human beings. And this hierarchical series is descriptive and so far for a restricted domain, namely mortal terrestrial beings. Nevertheless, the robust occurrence of these asymmetrical existential dependencies among every organism that we can encounter perceptually, it calls out for explanation, right? And Aristotle, he attempts to elucidate what such an explanation would look at by invoking another sequentially ordered series, namely the series of figures. And let me see the time. Yes, I could, I could read out this whole thing. It's not too long. This is text four. He says, it is clear then that in the same way, there could be one account for both soul and figure. Um, figures are uh, geometrical polygons, right? enclosed figures, triangles, quadrangles, so on. For in the one case, a figure is nothing beyond a triangle and the others following in series. There's four-sided, five-sided, six-sided, and so on. And in the other, a soul is nothing beyond the things mentioned. There could, however, in the case of figures, be a common account which fits them all, though it would be peculiar to none. And the same holds in the case of souls mentioned. Right? So you can give an account of like a figure that's just a, 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 poly, you know, a polygon with at least three sides and three angles um, that covers every single figure, but it doesn't tell you what a triangle is or a quadrangle is. And, Recall the same thing happens with souls. We can give an account that's common to them all. It's the form is first actuality of a natural instrumental body, <laughs> potentially living, but that's you can understand the human soul or a tiger soul or a plant soul. Right. So for this reason, it is uh, ludicrous, foolish um, to seek a common account in these cases or in other cases, an account which is not peculiar to any proper and indivisible species when neglecting what is of this sort. Consequently, one must ask individually what the soul of each is. For example, what the soul of a plant is, or the soul of a man, or a beast. You need to go through them one by one if you're going to understand what's essential to any of them. Now, as I said, we've already, I've already mentioned briefly this passage. Um, Aristotle insists that neither soul nor life can be defined directly, univocally. Um, and I also noted that it points to Aristotle's embrace of the second of the two remaining options when univocal definition is unavailable, that life and soul are not nothing, they're posterior. That is, neither life nor soul can be understood unless you make an inquiry at a lower level of generality first. Right? And the relevant level of generality is um, that at which soul occurs within this series just described. We need to investigate the capacities of soul whose exercises nutritive activity then those whose exercise is perceptual activity, then those whose exercise is rational activity. These are the three 
prior investigations to get the posterior understanding of life. But um, this passage does also help us understand the hierarchy of souls insofar as it draws our attention to a more familiar series, the series of figures, and to the relations that obtain among its sequentially ordered members. Um, he goes on to describe how the series of souls parallels the series of figures. This is the last quote here. It says, what holds in the case of the soul is very close to what holds concerning figures. For in the case of both figures and in soul things, what is prior is always present potentially in what follows in a series. For example, the triangle in the quadrilateral and the nutritive soul in the perceptual. One must investigate the reason why they are thus in a series. Yeah. So, both the series of figures and the series of souls, they're ordered by these relations of priority and posteriority. Right? Some are earlier in this series, some come later. They each have uh, a unique position. Um, and for any ordered series, there's going to be no genus prior to all of the species. I mean, this is, this is part of the reason why he thinks there can be no common definition of either soul or figure that would reveal the essence of any of the many species of soul and figure on its own, right? And thus there's no way that that could supply the unity that you would need to understand what life, or in this case, figure is. You're in the same boat with both of them. So if there's no prior common genus, then the science of soul is only possible if there's a single way to understand what it is for a prior member of the series to be related to a posterior member of the series, the kind of organizing principle and the relations between the, the members in the series. And this is why Aristotle asserts that we must investigate the reason why the series members occur within it as they do. And it's not, it's not enough simply to say that look, we survey the living organisms around us, we find that the basic ways life manifests itself are ordered successively and hierarchically. And we do find that this is so. But look, just as there's a difference between investigating vital capacities, just going through them one by one to be thorough, as it were, right, and trying to understand what it is for a capacity to be a vital capacity, right, what life is, there's going to be a difference between investigating a hierarchy and trying to understand the principle by virtue of which the hierarchy is ordered in the way we find it to be, what explains it. And the method by which we come to understand the reason why a series of members are hierarchically ordered is surprising. Says, to understand what unites the many increasingly multi-sided varieties of figure, we must understand the systematic way in which relatively simple figures are present within comparatively complicated ones. For each individual figure, right, besides the series first number, right, triangles, a figure that immediately precedes it in the series says it's present within it in potentiality or in capacity. These triangles are present potentially in quadrilaterals. Quadrilaterals are present potentially in pentagons and so on. And similarly, to understand what unites the ways life manifests itself across species of varying complexity, you need to understand the systematic way in which the souls that are the principles of relatively simple ways of life are present within the souls of comparatively complicated individual organisms. Right? In the same way with figures, each individual organism's soul, right, besides the series first member, the nutritive souls of, of individual plants, a soul that immediately proceeds in this series is present 
within it potentially in capacity. Nutritive souls, he thinks, are present potentially in perceptual souls. And perceptual souls are present potentially in rational souls. I presumably have a rational soul. In my soul is a, um, an animal's soul. It's not there actually. It's present potentially. Whatever that means. I haven't said yet. <laughs> now, warning. I'm not going to say. <laughs> that, will be, that will come later. To explain exhaustively what it is for one thing to be or exist potentially in something else, um, it's, a, it's a difficult task. And for one thing, um, it will turn out that what it is for figures to have this status is going to be very different from what it is for souls to have this status. And there are other many examples where he employs this kind of relation that are going to be different as well. Um, but what I want to emphasize, at least today, is how significantly Aristotle's approach changes our guiding question. Um, life and soul are said in many ways. Individual souls comprise many parts and capacities. To understand what unites life's homonyms, you have to understand what unites an individual organism's soul, what it is for lower souls to be present potentially in the higher ones. And to understand what unites an individual organism's soul, we have to investigate the capacities and parts of soul that are ultimately unified in this way within us. And this isn't just to be thorough, to go through them all, right? The reason we must study these capacities in turn is to make them intelligible as capacities of soul. And this requires that we focus not on the capacities as if they were like autonomous subjects of empirical inquiry, as if there was some genus capacity of soul that they fall under, but rather, um, we need to focus on the principle that governs the series, the hierarchy they occupy, and allows us to understand them all as forms of living. If there is to be a science of the soul, there must be a principle that governs this series. And it's by coming to understand this principle that one understands life itself. The positive things I'll say, I imagine this in many ways is disappointing as far as lectures go. Um, it's a question what life is, and I've not said it. Um, I suggested that in order to understand what life is, you need this posterior account where you inquire into the principle, the principle that governs the hierarchy of souls. I haven't explained that fully. Um, I, in order to do that, you need to know what it is for one soul to exist potentially in another, and ultimately to understand what it is for a very complex organism soul to be a unity. I haven't given a full account of that either. Um, now, as the among the four speakers as the representative of philosophy, <laughs> I should say that this reveals, at least in my mind, something important about our field. <laughs> this may be a lesson for the undergraduates in the audience. Answering philosophical questions, though I haven't done so today, is actually relatively easy. We're, we're clever people, and there's no shortage of answers. We're were lousy answers. There are too many of them. <laughs> in my experience, the hardest task in philosophy is figuring out what are the right questions to be asking. The answers will come <laughs> in due course. And today, I hope at least I've shown that through understanding what Aristotle's account of soul is, some progress has been made on this front. Thank you, Dr. Fred, for that uh, very uh, 
Very good, very insightful lecture. It, it clarified some things for me. I really appreciate it. Um, it, it. It got me thinking. So, so for Aristotle, the idea of understanding life is posterior to at least some amount of investigation of what of, of, of the examples of life. Yeah, you, you first understand nutritive right. activity, perceptual activity, rational activity. You do that. In a certain way. Yeah. So, he, so he investigated this and tried to find a connection and found this hierarchy mm -hmm. that he, he parallels with, with figure, which, which on the surface of it has a very linear structure to it. There's one thing at the bottom, then one thing above it, then another thing above it, then another thing above it. But there's, in his investigation, an entire aspect of life he never discovered because he was not capable of finding single cell organisms and the cellular structure of um, life. There's certain aspects of what we would consider a life that he was not didn't have access to. Sure. Um, it opens up the question in my head of it would it make sense to follow his principles in the sense of trying to find a hierarchy, but does that hierarchy need to be linear? Right? So for Aristotle, right, the, the powers of the plant are present in the animal. Mm -hmm. But if instead we saw the fact that there is a sort of more fundamental aspect of singular cellular life. That there could be sort of branching hierarchy where there's life in plants that that incorporates something of and manifests something of the principle of life in single cell organism, and life in animals that incorporates that principle of single cell life in a different way, and yet they're all they're all part of life, not because of a linear hierarchy, but through the branching hierarchy. Would that be acceptable on Aristotelian terms, or would that be problematic? Um. Well, it's, so there's a question of how to integrate these kind of organisms that you've discovered here. I mean, I imagine some unicellular organisms are going to end up being counted as animals by his lights, right? As long as they can move. And, um, it depends on the ways in which they respond to stimuli, whether that would elevate them to perceiving. Not most cases, I take it, it would not be, right? It would be the same as like, you know, of plants that's phototropic being sensitive to differences in the position of the sun. You don't want to say that they're perceiving it, right? Um, um, but you can have weird cases that, um, I don't know if you'd say they branch off, but it's difficult to know where to place them. And he recognizes and accepts that, for example, between plants and animals, there's this weird vague middle ground where you may find some organisms that you don't know which side you should place them on. He's, he's content with this. And he'll even mention and accept that um, before you even get to plants, there may be the same kind of you know, vague area between things that don't have souls that are and have nutritive souls. I mean, these days we have some issues with this. Like, are, are, are viruses alive? I see nods and head shaking in the audience. I think um, um, I'd say no, but like you know, there's at least controversy over this. There, there are weird edge cases. Now, recognizing those those kinds of cases wouldn't require you to have something other than this linear hierarchy. Um, if it does branch off, right, um, it's going to be a lot more complicated. The understanding of like what governs this. The nice thing here, so thinks about the linear one, is there's one relationship you need to understand. Each prior member is present potentially in the later one. And if you understand that, 
then you can see why they're connected in this way. It's not easy to do, but at least it, it kind of gives shape to the inquiry. If it was like branching off, there'd be, um, it'd be a little more difficult to know why they all occupied positions, and there'd probably be multiple kinds of relations. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure there's any organism I'm aware of that, would, that you couldn't fit <laughs> um, into this tripartite hierarchy. But that may be um, that may be my bias towards wanting not wanting it to be right, but um, um, uh, of viewing these kind of odd cases in um, in a charitable way. You, I mean, you get this even in Aristotle himself. He obsesses with, like, for example, barnacles, which he writes a ton about because. They're animals, but they don't move themselves, right? They're sessile. So, so you'll get a lot of these cases where he, he realizes things aren't neat and clean. Um, but I don't take these to be like counterexamples to the, the kind of simpler picture that I put forward. It's just, you know, you present it somewhat more simply, realizing that there's going to be some complications. But my hope is that the complications don't overturn the entire the entire structure that we're that. Thank you, Professor, uh, for your lecture. Uh, I wanted to ask, as you were talking about the principles and hierarchy, um, just a general question, uh, metaphysically, how much can the understanding of final causality Contribute uh, to this hierarchy, because like, you were talking about in terms of uh, nutritive and rational. Um, if you can explain that, for, thank you. Oh, how final causality? Um, yeah. So yes. Um, there are some people. This is not an interpretation I endorse. Who who directly think that like explanations that involve final causes. That's how to understand the the sequence of the hierarchy. That, for example, that the lower, you know, for a lower soul to be present potentially in a higher one, you could cash that out in terms of, you know, the higher capacities occurring for the sake of the lower ones, right? Where they stand in these kind of teleological relations. Um, and there are complicated reasons I have for, for rejecting this as, as an idea of, I mean, on the way I view Aristotle and having perceptual capacities isn't a better way to live a nutritive life. It's not that, I mean, of course it's true that sight helps you find food, right? But um, that kind of relationship, although all these all these final causal stories exist between capacities, that's not an explanation of what, um, what makes an animal an animal, what makes it live a perceptual life. It's not this additive picture where it's a nutritive life and then you just slap on a new capacity but it's fundamentally just a kind of the ultimate story. You know, the picture I was pointing towards was one where to understand this presence and capacity, right? What it is for nutritive souls to be the sort of thing that could be present in perceptual souls. Well, you have to kind of switch and study the souls of these capacities within individual organisms. So you take a tiger or something, you take an animal. And we try and understand how its its nutritive capacities, their exercises, 
turn out to be ways of realizing or living a perceptual life, right? And it's, it's an odd kind of thing that in animals, eating is the way of leading an animal life, which is a perceptual life, which sounds strange, right? Like, but um, you need to somehow view these things as you find. In order to get that picture, um, I think this is going to be one of the talks even next time, talking about like a, a proper hylomorphic account of, of individual organisms, seeing all of their capacities as united with a single formal end, right? Everything that goes on in me is part of living a single kind of activity, living a human life. And um, so part of the story will be understanding the unity of like, complex souls like my own, the unity of living organisms and the kind of lives they lead. In that picture, there's no way to get it without appealing to final causes, seeing all of these activities as somehow united and being directed towards a single end, namely the, the, the soul itself. Everything I do in my life is in some sense part of realizing my human form as well and completely as can be. At least that's the, the very broadest, most general picture. So it'll, it'll come in but down the line, not in understanding the, the hierarchy. I personally find myself very, very challenged because the very ordered kind of hierarchy that you've described it doesn't appear to exist to me. I think the simplest understanding I have of a nutritive, an entity that would have a nutritive soul would be confined explicitly and exclusively to bacteria and archaea. Those are individual organisms that are capable of providing nutrition from their environment to themselves. Everything above that, in an evolutionary sense, has a completely different approach to nutrition. It's a predator. It's something that eats something that is actually capable of providing nutrition for itself. So I cannot see how predation is um, implicit, or a, nutri a nutritive soul could be implicit in something that takes a radically approach to to nutrition. I mean, nutrition for everything above bacteria is about killing. And for bacteria, it's about feeding themselves. Yeah, I mean, nutrition's going to be incredibly different in different kinds, specific kinds of animals. Perception will be too, right? I mean, you've got the way I perceive, you've got bats who are echolocators. I don't, you know, or mantis shrimpers, like, you know. That's another thing. I yeah. mean, perception is, is equally messy. Yeah. I do not know a single living organism that's not capable of perception, including bacteria. They all perceive their environment. They have to in order to exist. So perception, it doesn't seem to me, is, is above nutrition. It's it's simply a ubiquitous component of any living entity. I, I, I'm going to put the question about perception second, because that's a big thing. But just the, the first one, which I, which, I, which I do understand the concern. When he ends up discussing these kind of, I guess, the three basic ways, sometimes four, sometimes locomotion comes in as a fourth. Um, the account of what it is to have a nutritive capacity, just very generally, it's, it's a quite, to use the word general, again, a quite general thing. It's, it's a capacity to maintain its possessor as such. <laughs> um, and it doesn't, I mean, to have a nutritive soul, it doesn't require that it doing that occur in some more narrow way. So there would be some animals who exercise this capacity through predation. There are some of them who are absorbing 
nutriment through their roots um, and presumably taking in energy photosynthetically as well. If you consider that nutrition, um, um, there are going to be the ways that bacteria do it as well. Um, Those would all count equally as as the sort of threptic side of the having a nutritive soul. I mean, at that level, um, um, when it comes to perceptual sense, it's a very general account. It's taking on sensible forms without matter. Um, we don't have to go into the details of like weird Aristotelian views about perception, um, which I'm happy to reject the details of the account. But, um, but it is just being able to take on um, Inform- information is a terrible word. Um, being able to encounter the properties of other things as other, right, as something distinct from oneself. In this way, at least in at least in the philosophy of perception, like forget Aristotle scholarship. Um, you're probably as dismissive of the philosophy of perception as well, as far as it. No, 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 um, um, there's there's usually a distinction made between kind of differential responsiveness to stimulus, right, and something like perception, which is only going to come on board at levels typically higher than bacteria and plants. Um, um, you'll find people who say this, but at least, I, I don't know about biology, but few philosophers of perception say plants perceive their environment. Um, they are in some sense they they respond to them they they are able to i mean like as like phototropic plants they they're able to you know they'll they'd be able to track as it were the position of the sun as it crosses the horizon and move appropriately right to 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 survive as you say to to, to photosynthesize um now what is required of perception over and above this sort of Differential responsiveness to stimulus. People come up with very different accounts of what this would consist in. Right? Um, some people go way too far. You know, you've got all the, the Kantians who think you need like a conception of the self, and <laughs> like you know, they bring in all sorts of intellectual machinery. So you know, it's even difficult to know how animals are perceiving. Right? Um, um, but the the sort of distinction is that it's not just a responsiveness to the world, but a way of representing the world as a world, as something distinct from oneself, um, um, as something you're representing and it could be incorrect or false about these representations, which isn't going to happen in the same way as a lot of the the stimulus responses. Um, There are people who want perception all the way down, right? Down to bacteria, you know, where there's like there's perception out there. Um, I think the majority of you is that it's going to occur Somewhere above plants, um, Plato thought plants perceived. <laughs> um, so it's not that that view wasn't even around in Aristotle's time. Um, so he didn't call them animals, right? Because he thought, you know, there was kind of pleasure and pain in their wilting and responding to things. I know that's not entirely satisfying, but, but, um, but that's. So we can't define soul, fair enough, this is a really complicated thing. We can't define triangle. You can define triangle. Okay. Can we define but you can't de- you, it, it's that if you give a definition of figure, 
that's going to have the same deficiencies as a, just a broad definition of life or soul. Okay, so yeah. is there something we can become? What counts as a, a definition that figure and soul oh. can You can get the definition of a triangle. You can get the definition of a quadrangle. And a definite, you know, you can, you can say what each of those is. And it's going to be different. What is to be a triangle is different than a quadrangle, right? right? Um, three-sidedness is essential to one. Four-sidedness is essential to one. What does the undefined thing lack that keeps us from being defined? What the undefined thing is, if you if you just give the definition of a figure, that isn't going to reveal what's essential to any of the individual kinds of figures. Like if, if if I just give you an account of a figure and that's all you have, you won't know what a triangle is or a quadrangle is. It hasn't given you almost that. anything that fits it. Anything that's triangle is close, three-sided figure. That's right. And and all the different kinds of souls are first actualities of natural instrumental bodies. The things you have in the general account can be perfectly true of every single thing that ends up being in the hierarchy. But it's not on its own a definition, because a definition has to reveal the essence of the thing. And the definition of figure hasn't revealed the essence of anything. Because take triangles. If you give the account of figure, it does not reveal the essence of triangles. It hasn't revealed the essence of quadrangles. This is this is the general kind of argument. This is the um, um where he says there could, however, this is in T four. There could, however, in the case of figures, be a common account which fits them all, right? Though it will be peculiar to none. That is, it won't reveal the essence of any of the members of the series. Um, right, and so it goes on. Um, it's foolish to seek a common account, an account which is not peculiar to any proper and indivisible species, while neglecting what is of this sort. That's that's what you would really need. Right, a definition is supposed to reveal the essence of something, what it is. And his Aristotle's the definition he gives of soul. It's them all. It's true of them all, but it doesn't reveal the essence of any kind of soul that exists. So if you, the essence itself, you define. Uh, so the, the, sorry, the terminology is for you. Um, say the definition is an account, an account that um, expresses what the essence is. What the thing, a definition is supposed to tell you what the thing is. Which is alternative, depending on the text you're reading, its substance or its essence. Um, um, definition is no good if it doesn't tell you what what's essential to something. Um, that's not, not to say it's not incredibly useful, right? It's not like he throws out the the, the soul. Touch. <laughs> My John has a question, old friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Know something about Aristotle, which scares me. Sorry, I, I pushed you to the front. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much, Chris, uh, for your talk. Um, can I, I just want to ask a follow up on this point. Um, you said in, a definition of the sort we get it in 2 1, the first actuality, et cetera, yeah. is no good. It might be incredibly useful, but it doesn't express the essence of, you said, some combination of those things. Could, could you say a word about um, why you think he started book two by giving it? 
Uh-huh. Okay. Could he have just started with a survey of the sorts of things we call living in 2-2? Um, what work dialectically or epistemically or, or in the order of discovery, oh. what work do you think this first definition with all its limitations is doing in, in how Aristotle is unfolding his account? Yeah, this is good. Um, well, I mean, there are two things I can say, right? Um, one, which isn't as important as it, like, it, it is ultimately informative and very good that he did this because you learn important things about what souls are, right? Like a lot of the initial questions that he brings up at the very beginning, right, before he even surveys all of his predecessors' things, are like, well, look, maybe the soul is matter, maybe it's form, maybe it's, you should understand it in terms of capacity, or actually, like, these are some of the kind of basic divisions. And one thing this putative definition does is it kind of settles the general area, you know, what, I mean, even though there may be differences in what your ultimate account are, it's going to exclude a lot of them, right? He's, he's answering a lot of questions. Um, but one of the main reasons why he begins this way is sometimes the way you ought to begin an investigation in hope that there is a common definition, because oftentimes there is, and it will work out. And what you do is you give a definition that tells you what a thing is, and then the next step is to go through all of its main attributes, right? And you know, you get you start with what a thing is, and then you start going down what it's like in various ways. And that's like a coherent way of proceeding. And if you could do that, that's fantastic, right? Like, I mean, like he sets this out just as like even in the, the posterior analytic, it's like, you know, this is this is best practices, right? Um um, you start with substance and then you go through its accidents. Um, you aren't always able to do that. And in those cases, even though you can give this common account, you're going to have to do some more work just to get the, the relevant unity for the subject genus before you go on and, and do the further investigation of the properties. Um, and this problem he has is... You're well aware, I know, but not everyone else. This isn't the only investigation where he runs into this problem, right? Like the most famous is first philosophy, which he describes as the, the science of being qua being. Well, being is said in many ways. There are 10 of them. He did this in the categories. There's um, substance and accident, and various accidents, quality, quantity, and so on. And you're saying, well, how can we have a science of being if there are 10 different meanings, you know? There are 10 different things being can mean. And so here he needs to find, this is another case in which he gives a posterior account of being. You have to first understand them at the level of categories. And in this case, they aren't in a hierarchy. It's this other thing I didn't mention called focal meaning. One of the, one of the ways being is said ends up being fundamental and central to all the rest. And again, the details, you know, <laughs> but it's the same kind of structural problem. Like, all right, our subject matter is being, being is said in many ways. We need to find some kind of unity or there is no first philosophy. Like there is no metaphysics. There'd just be a science of substance and a science of quality and a science of quantity. And that's going to be a mess, right? Um, so there he's got a different way of trying to find a unity among this multiplicity of ways to be said 
but you can't have a definition of being. There is none, right? Um, um, there are just 10 fundamentally different ways to be is said, and you've got to start at that level and kind of figure out some way to get them together in a way that, that's sufficiently robust that you can keep going. And so something similar happens here. You know, he tries to give a general account, and you can kind of try and give a general account of being too. Might fit them all, but it's not going to work. <laughs> so you're left with these different, fundamentally different meanings of soul, but there is a way to get them together. Um, the way he unites them with soul is different than he unites the way it's being is said, but there are different methods even besides those two to get unity. But you've got to got to start. But I think that's why he starts with the general account, both because it answers a lot of the main questions about soul. You know, is it a form? Is it a matter? You know, those sorts of questions. And it's the first step one should take in trying to find out what something is. And if you take that step and it turns out not to be a good definition, right, you still are maybe in a position to, to unite the, the, the definitions there are, right, the different Ways soul is said posterior. <laughs> so, so would it be appropriate to say that um, sort of the definition that we're going with for soul is uh, it being tied close your mouth? Would it be appropriate to say that um, the definition of soul is tied to physical properties, cognition, and sort of understanding of one's surrounding is sort of a preface to my question? Um, the definite, well, I mean, part of this is to say there, I mean, not the definition of soul, there's an ultimate understanding of what soul is and what life is. You're never going to get a definition for it. But, but, but in order to understand this, you have to understand this series. In order to understand the series, you will have to understand rational capacities and rational life. You have to understand rational life, what it is for it to occupy its position in the series, that it's a sort of thing that comes after perceptual life and that somehow perceptual souls can be present potentially in whatever that amounts to. Yeah, I have ideas about this. But, but, but yeah, you... So you will have to understand, to understand any of the ways, like I said, you'll have to understand kind of all of them. You'll have to understand nutrition, perception, cognition, and how they are related to one another. Um, but that's not to say that, that cognition is like the central thing to understand about the soul or what, what's really fundamental to it. Um, that's just one of the three ways Living can basically be. So, sorry, that was just the preface you said to your, to your question. I don't know if that messed it up, though. So, what I was going to ask is sort of based on that, uh, would it be appropriate to consider certain alternative views of the soul um, as sort of. Um, not exactly being able to be directly measured in and of itself, but rather its effects are being measured. Um, so different accounts of soul you were thinking? Like, what would be an example of a different um, different accounts? Yeah, um, that might help me understand the question so better. Sort of like a different way of 
viewing how to approach it rather than it being something that can be directly measured in and of itself based on certain attributes rather yeah its effects and the things that it does those things are what's measured instead yeah i mean so one of the ways we understand souls is by understanding vital activity and what living organisms do right like i mean um in general, you can say you, you, you want to understand the capacity, you have to understand the activity first. So, look, you want to understand nutrition. You, you know, there's an investigation. It does a lot of work looking at things that feed and reproduce in the incredibly incredible varieties of way that uh, manage reproduction. More ways of reproducing even more than eating. <laughs> there are commonalities in these activities, the results that allow us to kind of systematically classify animals in different ways. Right? So like, if you look at his biological investigations, there are all sorts of more fine-grained classifications than just, you know, um, plant, animal, human being in this case, rational animal. You know, you've got divisions between, you know, the water dwelling and the air dwelling, those with four legs and two legs. Certain, like, I mean, it's just this complex network of different ways of classifying things that don't make like even a single taxonomy. It's open to like a diversity of distinct ways of doing it. But, but it is through an investigation of the activities themselves of the animals. Um, this is going to be slightly different than what you're doing when you're just focusing on what the soul is, um, um, which is related to these biological investigations. But it's, it is more on the metaphysics side of things, right? Where you've got these incredibly general accounts of like what nutrition is and what perception is, um, that seem, in a way, not divorced but distant from the much more narrow descriptions of activity and vital activities themselves. The, the like the alternative accounts, most of them he dismisses not by looking at activities but other you know why is the soul not a self-moving number? <laughs> like you know he goes through. A lot of his predecessors view why why you can't view it in terms of just like a harmony of parts or or um, in terms of like a special kind of matter that became popular again in the 19th century. The explanation and and that's his arguments for these tend not to be based on just like looking at organisms and seeing the various kind of diverse ways in which they they live their lives and. Um, and a lot of them are excluded even when he gives his kind of purported definition. You know, um, his arguments for it being for sexuality in the natural body, that's already excluding a lot of other options. It's not to say this isn't the only option of understanding what soul is, right? Um, um, but his thought is if you're going to give any account of soul where it's going to be like a single thing, like where there's going to be some unity to understanding it, you're going to have to unite all the different kinds of ways that, that life is present. I think he thinks that's just general um, kind of baseline background condition to the problem. You've got this wild diversity of living, um, and it's not clear why we should treat any of it as being the same single kind of thing happening. Um, so whatever your account of soul is, you're going to want it to... Um, be unified in such a way that it makes sense to think of what amoebas are doing and what human beings are doing as sometimes the same thing, 
even though there's not a single definition that picks out that would that would apply equally to both of those. It is surprising that like I mean we just take it for granted that plants and humans are both living and it's just heritage drifted down to it. Like it's not so obvious. Like these are amazingly different kinds of things. And at least early on, you know, this is the the genesis of biology as a discipline. There are plenty of people, you know, Thales' sticking magnets are alive because, well, they're moving on their own. And, you know, like, you've got all sorts of different candidates for what is and isn't alive and the sort of activities that are present. Um, plenty of people thought plants weren't alive um, among Parasol's predecessors. And you didn't get this into Descartes because they're just inanimate mechanisms and you don't get life until you get perception. Right? Um, so it's not obvious, right, that even... Plants should be on this list, right? but but he's thinking whatever your account of soul is, no matter what the alternative is, it's going to have to somehow give unity to the subject genus you're after, right? What makes all of these things live, alive in some single sense of alive, some united understanding of what they're all doing is doing one kind of 